This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, um, we've got Lynn Kaiser, and Lynn is the CEO of uh, Hyperganic. And Hyperganic is a company that wants to completely change CAD and make it much more, well, kind of procedural, I guess, much more kind of generative design, much more kind of in a maybe automate certain things. Mm. Uh, so really, yeah, to, to unlock what's, what's for 3D printing is more, one of the most difficult things, just the whole authoring, just getting a software uh, file and, and making it work. So yeah, welcome to 3D Pod, Lynn. Hey, nice uh, that you have me here. You know, thanks for having me. You know, looking forward to um, all your questions. Yeah, sure. So, so first off, I mean, just a little bit of like um, Hyperganic. It's a German startup, but it's also in like Singapore and all over the place. Like, how did it get started? Yeah, I mean, so it's not the first time I did something. I've been an entrepreneur for more than thirty years. You know, and did a couple of other companies. And um, you know, the company I uh, was in before that I started before, you know, thirty, you know, twenty years ago. That's one. Um, was in the field of uh, image processing. And uh, what we basically did is we digitized Hollywood. And so we were super successful. We started when everything was analog. and But over the years, I kind of got frustrated I was in, that I was in the entertainment business and I really wanted to have a bigger impact. And when Al Gore gave his famous talk about uh, you know, an inconvenient truth about climate change in 2008, I was really shocked and I, it really uh, shook me uh, awake and I, I said, okay, I, I need to do something else. And that was kind of the initial trigger you know, to do something else. So I sold that company to Adobe in uh, 2011. And then I tried to figure out uh, what I wanted to do when I grow up. And um, you know, I looked into lots of different fields. I looked into you know, underwater robotics you know, for research and these kinds of things, thought maybe I could do something there. And for that startup, I bought a 3D printer and I was hooked. Because uh, here was a machine. Um, I mean, I've been doing software all my life. You know, so I, I learned how to code when I was eight. That's uh, more than 40 years ago now. And um, here was a machine that could literally print code. You know, a machine that could transform the things that you've, uh, you can create in, in, in computer code and in software and make it real. And I was really hooked. And I, I thought, wow, you know, this is if, if we. If we think this through, it can be a complete transformation how we build objects. And then, of course, I discovered industrial 3D printing, etc. And I asked myself, what's holding back 3D printing? Because it seems like all the ingredients are there for a new industrial revolution. And, uh, yeah, and then um, I discovered what's holding it back. And that's really the design side of things, you know, the engineering side of things. So in your introduction, you said you know, we want to change CAD. You know, actually, we think uh, a little bit bigger. We want to replace CAD. If you look at CAD today, it is a descendant of pen and paper. So 2,000 years ago, a Roman engineer would sit there and you know, draw a bridge on a piece of papyrus, and then the you know, bridge-building master would build it for him. And today, somebody sits in front of a computer and uses a CAD program to draw a very complicated object in 3D, of course, but fundamentally, it's the same process. 
and the engineer and the working time of the engineer and you know the amount of uh, of time and and uh, you know skill the engineer can put into something you know determines the complexity and the um, sophistication of the final object and that doesn't scale very well and of course it doesn't scale very well when you look at the very complicated objects that we're now capable of producing using additive manufacturing. And I, I said, there is something in that space uh, where I can apply my past skills. You know, the first startup I started in the 1990s did industrial control systems, you know, milling machines, things like that. You know, we, we helped um, control these with uh, PC technology. Then I did image processing and I said, maybe I can distill something from the knowledge that I had from the previous startup experiences and uh, have an impact on this field of additive manufacturing designed for additive. And that was fundamentally the founding idea of Hypergenics. So I had this idea in 2014. I got out of, um, I got out of Adobe in uh, 2014 and then you know, did some initial research, you know, got together with my previous co-founder, and uh, yeah, that's, that's how it all started. I like that, especially the... Turning code into the physical object. I, as a coder myself, hadn't really thought of it in that terms, but that's fascinating. Yeah, if you think about it, you know, my, my uncle Lutz Kaiser, he was kind of a, a very interesting figure. You know, he started the first private space company in the 1970s. So my gra grandmother had pictures of rocket launches hanging on her wall instead of pictures <laughs> of, of, the, of the grandchildren. Right. So, <laughs> so that was kind of, I mean, it, it kind of helped, helped me, you know, think a little bit bigger, you know, when I was a kid. And so as a kid, you know, I assumed, you know, by the time I grew up, uh, you know, we'd be flying into space, you know, we have, you know, I don't know, hover cars and whatnot, right? And none of this happened, of course, you know, and of course, Elon is, you know, desperately trying to get us to Mars. But still, I mean, it's kind of frustrating if you think about how far engineering has come in, you know, 40 years. If you look at computing, how far it has come in 40 years, it's quite amazing, right? You know, I mean, you would never use a 40-year-old computer. I, I can tell you, I used these, you know, when I was a kid. So, so it's ridiculous. I mean, these computers belong into a museum, and that's where you find them. But a, a, a car from the 1980s, that's a fine car. You know, you would, you would not hesitate to drive it. Still works. <laughs> so the question is, what the hell happened? You know, why did software and why did uh, information technology evolve at this incredible pace? And why did the rest of engineering not evolve at this pace? And part of it has to do with with manufacturing, right? You know, it's very hard to manufacture things. You know, you have to build the machine that actually builds the part that you actually want to build. So you know, of course, it it rewards conservatism. It's it's it, you know, you, if you if you stick with what worked, you know, you don't have to redesign everything, and you uh, and uh, you're productive uh, much more quicker. But you know, now that we have additive, where you can basically build anything that you want, you know, what's holding us back? Why don't we engineer at the speed of Moore's law? And uh, the answer is because uh, we didn't do one important step that the um, uh, computer industry did, and the, uh, it did it in the Software. 1970s. So, so think about your computer chips. A computer chip is essentially a 3D printed computer. Yeah, if I mean, if you if you simplify it, of course it's different techniques. Yeah, yeah. It's a printed computer. I mean, before the microchip computers were these big machines, lots lots of parts. You know, had to screw them together, and you know had this complicated thing that you had to be uh, had to be assembled. Very hard to build. You know, so not many computers existed. It was very expensive. 
And then we had the microchip and there you could draw something and you could print it and then you had a computer on a chip. Now, for the first couple of years, microchips were basically drawn by hand, you know, of course, because there weren't any computers, there weren't any CAD programs. Then we had computer-aided design tools for microchip creation. But then in the 1970s, microchips got so complex that um, it really hit a crisis. You know, people couldn't design these chips anymore by hand. It would take way too much time. And um, there was a famous paper that was published by Xerox PARC, you know, the famous research institute. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and Carver Mead and Lynn Conway, you know, in this paper argued, you know, we're doing it wrong. You know, we shouldn't do computer-aided design for microchip. We should computer-generate these microchip designs. And this is what we are doing today. Today, there's nobody you know, sitting around in a CAD program drawing like uh, components of microchips. You design microchips by designing them through code. You, you have a microchip design language and the actual physical structures that need to go on the chip, they actually um, are fully, fully automated. You know, it's, it's, it's done by algorithms. And with additive, I would argue we're exactly where the microchip was in the 1970s. Yes, you can kind of still design things for additive by hand, but it's not fun and you're not taking advantage of the complexity and the functionality that you can actually put into these things. What we now have to do is implement a software paradigm into design. So we have to build algorithms that create objects instead of drawing them by hand. So we basically need algorithms that hold the brush that paints these objects into space. And that's exactly what we're doing with Hypergenic. I think that's interesting. I mean, first off, I think the Moore's Law, the reason we're not doing it is because we don't all believe in it, right? So the Moore's Law is a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that if you know you're going to go bankrupt if you don't get to a certain stage in two years, that with your tooling or your, your software or your thing, then you know, you're, you're, you're going to actually have a moving target, you know? It's like if you said that you, every second, every year, you need to be a second faster at the Olympics, or every Olympics you need to be a second faster than the one before, you know? Then a lot of people would just, uh, you know, end up not going or know that they could never make it, and other people would, would strive to get that one goal, you know? So it's, it's kind of like this, a moving target that is agreed upon, right? So it's a psychological thing, right? Yeah. But there's money involved, George. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> I know. But, but, <laughs> interesting. I mean, we couldn't do that. We don't have a similar thing for cars or electricity or, or additive, right? So I think that's just a side. I mean, we can discuss that for a long time, I think. But that's, yeah, um, absolutely. I, love, I mean, I, I, think, I think the thing is, you know, what you have in software is experimentation. You know, people just do things. You know, it's not, it's not very costly to do things in software. And so, you know, people play around with ideas and they implement it, you know, and then see how it works. You know, you never do that in engineering. It's way too costly to do that. So you stick with what works and maybe improve it, you know, incrementally a little bit. I mean, space is a, is a case uh, in point, you know. So um, all of the rocket designs that we have are fundamentally very, very conservative. I mean, it sounds outrageous when I say this because you have things like Starship and you're know, landing backwards and you know, all these things, right? But, you know, if you look at the details, you know, the designs are basically all derivatives of the designs of rocket engines from the 1950s. You know, a lot of Russian uh, concepts, there are lots of clustering of lots of engines and stuff like that. So well, yeah, right. we, we, we know where that actually comes from. So like, I'm not saying, no. <laughs> there's a lot of history there, you know, so, so yeah. <laughs> 
so let's not delve into that. You know, a lot of no, no. Sorry, but I'm just, just I, I just don't want to give the Russians. I just think the Russians got the right scientists. That's all. Uh, to do yeah, I mean, we, we all had our shares of, of scientists. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Around. yeah. And, whatever. Uh, sorry. But, but the thing is, you know, it's not. I mean, why? I mean, SpaceX always errs on the side of speed. You know, so they want to be fast. They want to be fast. They want to move forward very fast, and so. They don't innovate so thoroughly because that would slow them down tremendously. So it's a lot of a lot of incremental work, and this is how engineering works. This is not how computer technology works. And there's another fundamental difference between software and physical engineering. In physical engineering, all the engineers are constantly busy reinventing the wheel because there's very few, very little reuse in the designs that they create. You know, if you want to make a change to a CAD design, usually you have to start from scratch because as, as soon as you start making changes to something, it starts falling apart and then things that depend on each other don't work anymore. So people look at, you know, there's this terrible mess that's on their screen. They're like, ah, let's, let's, let's do it again. You know, this wastes a lot of time. In software, on the contrary, you uh, you solve a problem. We have libraries. I mean, in software, you solve it once, right? Yeah. You know, if I create a right. database, you can use it. You don't have to know how the database exactly works. And you know, this is this reuse. You know, this is something that we need to bring into engineering. That's that's what we're doing. I mean, basically, what Hyperganic does is we create objects using computer algorithms. And because these computer algorithms are pretty flexible, I mean, they can adapt to the engineering challenges that you throw at them. Uh, but the, the more important thing is they are reusable. So if I design a algorithm that creates a rocket combustion chamber, I don't have to design a rocket combustion chamber anymore. I just parameterize it in the right way, and I get the right one. And maybe once in a while I have to tweak the algorithm to produce a better model or whatever. But instantly, everybody can use that. So it's exactly what we have in software. When somebody improves the database technology, all the customers of that database technology all of a sudden have a better performance or whatever it is that was improved. And we don't have that in engineering. In engineering, things scale with the amount of work you put into them and not with the amount of reuse and you know, lateral you know, um, uh, uh, pollination and things like that. I like so but is your system, um, is it an actual like coding system or is there a GUI on top of it? Oh, so it's, it's an actual coding it's, it's the language. Well, you know, we, we get a lot of confusion about that, you know, because a lot of people think, oh, yeah, they have built a better CAD tool. A CAD tool is a right. tool that's a visual tool. You can build a GUI on top of our stuff. Absolutely, we have that. I mean, our apps that we create, of course, they have a GUI. You want to see what you're doing, right? But right. You're, as an engineer, you're sitting there writing code. And this is, at first, it's confusing to people because people think coding is difficult. But that's that's a, a common misconception. I mean, I learned how to code when I was eight years old. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah, it's it's not rocket science. I mean, there's a lot of other things, especially <laughs> rocket science, right? But not coding. Right. And, and if you, as an engineer, you don't know how to code, I mean, please learn it. You know, this is this is one of the most powerful things you can put into your uh, into your repertoire because. Yeah, it's supercharging you. All of a sudden, you can deploy your knowledge at the scale of computing power that you have, and not with the scale of your workday. Uh, and like how to... is your system though like different than like G code, for example? Well, I mean, G code—that's a really primitive way of coding, right? You yeah, I mean, right. It is, but I'm, yeah. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yes, absolutely. G code is some kind of code, but you know, I mean, you have like four commands fundamentally, and then you know a few M commands. So, I mean, we have a full-fledged 
programming systems. So, I mean, we are talking about large-scale software design. So, and that is that is also, I mean, I think that sets us apart a little bit in terms of the vision between, you know, some of the other automated uh, CAD tools and stuff like that. I mean, there's tools like Grasshopper or whatever, you know. So you code in a visual way and there's extension where you can also, you know, dabble a little bit into uh, real coding. But all of these systems are designed to produce relatively simple objects. Now, what mm -hmm. we say is, you know, eventually this, we're talking about, you know, large-scale software development, like hundreds of thousands and millions of lines of code that produce the most complex machinery, uh, the designs of the most complex machinery that the world has ever seen. You know, I, I think at some point, you know, it's, uh, it, an algorithm will be able to design an entire airplane. And now this sounds ridiculous if you think about it. You know, oh my God, you know, he wants to create an algorithm that designs an airplane. But if you think about it, it's just a question of the amount of work, of the amount of coding, because it's completely <laughs> clear how you start. I mean, you start with the wheel, and then you do this, and you put, you know, you, you, you add the fuselage, and, and there's a lot of details and a lot of functionalities that you have to actually create. But it is just a lot of work. I mean, you have to put a couple of people to work, and then, uh, you know, it's going to take them a while. And at some point, you know, it's going to produce an airplane. I always found it ridiculous that we have algorithms that can fly airplanes, which is in, in, in my opinion, it's much more complicated because it's not so clear. I mean, there's a lot of conditions that you can't really foresee when you're flying an airplane. But designing an airplane, I mean, if an engineer can do it, why shouldn't an algorithm do it? Do you envision using your system that people will be doing like genetic algorithms, for example, to create generational systems? You know, like make a thousand planes and then get me the one that's the best plane. And then we'll, a human can then look at it after it's gone through a thousand, ten thousand, a million iterations. And then that's the one I guess we'll, we'll make or that we'll start looking at in depth. Absolutely. And that's what we're already yeah. doing. I mean, you can, you can, Ooh. I mean, so, so we have three sweet spots, you know, for our technology right now. So number one is just highly complex objects. I mean, using algorithms, you can produce objects that an engineer would never even touch because, yeah, well, mm -hmm. they, they want to go home at some point. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, for that, uh, by the way, we created a completely new proprietary geometry kernel that's specific for additive manufacturing. So fundamentally, it allows us to address every particle that the 3D printer can output. So if you want to fill your entire build volume with, with random noise, I can store that and, you know, I can work with that, you know, and the performance is fine. So no other uh, geometry kernel currently can do that. So that's the foundation. So we can create basically any object that the printer can print. And of course, an algorithm is ideal to create complex objects. Think of heat exchangers and stuff like that. The other part is mass customization. So if I have an algorithm that can create uh, a object, then of course, I can adapt that object to all kinds of inputs. So uh, say you have a, a you know, scan of a head and I can grow a, a helmet around it. And uh, finally, the helmet fits. I don't know if you guys have kids or if you ever go shopping for, for helmets, you know, it's not fun. You know, it's, it always seems to be designed for somebody else's head which is yeah. the actual truth. So why not do that for the actual people who buy the stuff? So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's close to body that is currently where we kind of squeezing ourselves into stuff that doesn't really fit. An algorithm can create something that actually fits and then can be produced on, on an additive manufacturing machine. And by the way, that's not just in consumer goods. That's, of course, also in the medical field, but also in industrial applications. So, you know, why not cr automatically create a, I don't know, an electric motor or, you know, an injector head for a rocket engine that specifically 
fits a certain bill. Yeah. So instead of using standardized parts, and now you have to create your machine around the standardized part, why not automatically create the standardized the, the the generative part in such a way that it fits perfectly? So uh, mass customization. Yeah. That's that's a great sweet spot. But as you just pointed out, you know, if I can create a lot of objects automatically, I can also explore a lot of solutions to potential problems, and I can find this one best solution to this to this highly complex problem. And here, of course, the question is. How do I find out what the best one is? And you can simulate, you know, you can evaluate physical formula, you can learn, you know, through machine learning, you know, what works and what doesn't work. You can test print, you know, this is actually a great thing. You know, we have these printers mm -hmm. and output actual objects. So maybe you just put it in the wind tunnel and give us feedback and feed that back into the algorithm. And so you can explore a gigantic solution space and come up with the one solution that is perfect. And, you know, we're doing a lot of that, yes. I like That's the raising cool. the abstraction level, and you know, if you, I try to explain it like this, when I say the limitation of CAD is you're, you're at the moment you're designing every brick, right, and then you're going to assemble all the bricks, and then you're going to build a house, right. So the idea of, of of moving back and saying, you know, let let's let's assemble infinite houses and then and come up with the optimal shape, I think is really interesting. It's kind of like a more uh, engineering oriented way of approaching uh, that problem and, and raising the abstraction level like several levels. I'd say so. I think that's that's very exciting. But to me, yeah, I mean, we, we quintupled uh, the company size in the last uh, year and uh, we had to onboard a lot of engineers. And these engineers are usually they don't have a coding background. You know, they, they are mechanical engineers, uh, aerospace engineers, etc. And, you know, within a, just a couple of weeks, you know, we uh, we usually have them productive. And, you know, mm. what they all tell us is how liberating it is, because, I mean, all of their, you know, we have a lot of fresh grads, right? You know, and, and during all of their studies, you know, people always, you know, told them, you know, how to draw this and that, you know, and how it's usually being done and whatnot. And now all of a sudden, you know, they they can actually look at problems in a more abstract way and, and you know, ask themselves, you know, what do I actually want to achieve? And because it's relatively effortless to achieve these things, even for highly complex objects, you know, they experiment and they come up with solutions that they otherwise would have never even thought of. But this has massive applications beyond just additive manufacturing. Like I can think right off the top of my head that if I can do constraints like this, I could program a part that meets my functionality, but also tell it that it needs to work with tooling to be like, for example, a straight pull so that I have less pieces of in my tooling to reduce cost absolutely. of the tooling itself. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I, there, there is a lot of um, areas outside of additive. I, I'll just be honest. I mean, in my opinion, I mean, additive is over time going to replace a lot of the traditional manufacturing. Uh, not yes. It's yes. because it's cheaper or something. But it's simply the objects that we can create using additive, they are so much more functional. They're so much more interesting, uh, so much more efficient and, and sustainable than the stuff that we can traditionally create that, you know, at some point it just doesn't make any sense, you know, to use traditional manufacturing anymore. And right now it, it sounds a little bit ludicrous because, you know, we all know about the costs and the challenges and all of these yeah. things. Time. But, you know, we are, we are, where microchip manufacturing was in the, in the end of the 60s, you know. I mean, it's still kind of boutique and it's still kind of expensive. I mean, I remember the time when we put, like, microchips on little sockets you know so that if your computer broke you could remove the processor and put it into a different computer because it was so expensive 
And now today, I mean, you you have a microchip in the tag that's in your in your sweater when you buy it in the store, and you know when yeah. you get home, you you throw it away. I mean, if you told somebody <laughs> in the 1980s that you threw away a microchip, you know they would, you know, <laughs> you know, it would be unbelievable. But you know, today, you know, it's 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 where it is. And so I think additive needs to come way further, and it will. You know, everybody's working on the industrialization. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. But in going back to Max's thing, I mean, I did this before, like a, a while ago. We did a project where the outcome was like, well, how do we? How about we just start with the constraints, right? Going mm-hmm. back to Max, well, Max yeah, as well, exactly. Yeah, and then how about we we go we dispense with the code exactly, and we just say what what we want. Or the the, the concrete example is if we can find a hole in the ground and we know how big the explosion is, how big do how can we design the new armor based on that, right? Absolutely. That was literally the outcome of this this project. I mean. So why are you working this code phase? Why not go like further and say like you know into the like essentially using the FA like finite element analysis and all this kind of stuff to to, to predict the, and to do the the modeling of constraints of, of these kind of uh, solutions? Yeah, but you know how do you build such a pro uh, such a system? And um, you know the answer is with code. So you know the coding right. is at the, at the absolute core of this, and you know. At the beginning of computing, every company wanted to build a computer that was completely closed, and you know, basically all the software came from the manufacturer of the computer. And that was a wonderful initial business model until you know we realized, hey, there's a lot of folks out there who have a lot of ideas and there's a lot of smart people. If we empower them to actually build solutions on their own, you know, we can create what we have today with, with the software ecosystem that we have in, on the PC today and that's basically what we're enabling so so i don't think i want to hire all the smart people in the world you know to come up with all these great solutions you know why don't we let them build them uh, build this stuff themselves and we of course will help them i mean i'm hiring a lot of guys in the end you know the true power of an ecosystem comes from the amount of people using it and all the smart people you know coming up with stuff that you would never think about no, I, I'm just saying that there's a, a, like in essence what you're saying is you want to sell to answers. <laughs> or is that, is that, does that mean? I mean, answers is a great input to what we are doing, so maybe we could oh, exactly. try them at some point. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, okay. That would be exciting. <laughs> so, so you have a development environment, I assume. You developed a, a language of, of some kind. Is it yeah, based we, off of... C, yeah, yeah. C++. Yeah. yeah, we use C Sharp. I mean, we didn't invent a new oh, okay. language. Fine. You know, enough right. language Even better. There. Even easier. Yeah, so, <laughs> so we use C Sharp. You know, we didn't use Python. Python is, is really not for large-scale software uh, development. You know, it's, it's great for a lot of coding, but it's, it's not so suitable for larger things. So C Sharp is great, you know, because it you know, gives you uh, the best of C++ and the best of, you know, the more uh, simpler languages. And uh, you can create really complex objects uh, and really complex um, uh, code. If, if you're using C Sharp, then are you just are you just using a Microsoft development environment, yeah, yeah, or yeah, did you guys use... have to create? Yeah, okay, yeah. No, no. I mean, why, why reinvent the wheel? I mean, we are just no, using... no. I'm I'm with you. I, I was just wondering if there's like a when you hit compile, do you have it at least? Do you have a plugin or something that that generates a 3D file for you to look at or? Something of oh, that nature. Oh, we have we have viewers and everything. I mean, you can create oh, okay. right, right. you can create modern interactive, uh, you know, uh, user experiences, and you see exactly what you're doing. And you know, that's that that's not the issue. I mean, it's not like you know, yeah, you're you're waiting for ten minutes and then you have mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you see this stuff. I mean, we have 
we have we have the only interactive voxel based display you know that, uh, that you know that exists you know so we can we can visualize these things and you can see them growing as as you watch them and you can interactively change things and yeah i mean it's not it's not it's not like you're doing this all in abstract form i mean we're not just hiring mathematicians you know we are hiring engineers right. that can see what they're doing so how much does it cost? <laughs> yeah. Oh well, it depends on what you're using it for, right? You know, because uh, you know our business model is basically dependent on the success of our customers. So it doesn't cost anything if you use it, for example, for research. But it costs something, you know, if you use it for for commercial use cases. And um, you know, there we have a, a a commercial model that's based on on paper print. You know, so you know we get a share of the final object, and that's how we work. Oh, cool. I, I like, I especially like this. I, mean, I like this, like the, the 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 idea is really good. I think I think the concept is really good, and I like it if you can handle voxel based uh, inputs and change those inputs and edit on a voxel based level without having to individually edit every voxel, right? If you can do that in a rule based way or an optimized way, I think that's super exciting. Like especially if we're going forward, we want to be able to define the properties per voxel. We want to be able to make truly gradient parts. We want to mm -hmm. be able to make multi-material gradient parts. There's in multiple Absolutely. different metals having mm -hmm. gradient properties throughout the build, like different flexibility, different magnetism, different all that. By the way, yeah. we all have that and we are all doing that. I mean, already like three years ago, we produced the first parts on a Stratasys, Stratasys uh, J750, you know, where we created material gradients, where we dithered in space, you know, all of these things. And, you know, the um, the material scientists are going, going to have a field day. I mean, uh, you were never able to, you know, print, uh, you know, alloys that have gradients in them. You know, and where every piece of metal is exactly in the right spot. So welcome. You know, let's let's find out how all this stuff works. You know, there's amazing things you can do now. I mean, especially in metals, if you create gradients. So for example, you can create an outer shell that's very hard and then gradually make it porous. You know, it has a huge um, effect on um, stress propagation. So stresses, you know, uh, propagate, of course, you know, through very hard materials. So if I if I pierce a, a glass pane, it you know, shatters in a thousand pieces. If I pierce a, a wooden desk, you know, it doesn't shatter at all. You know, it just you know, makes a little hole. So what you can do is you can create the best of both worlds. You, know, you, you have a very hard surface, and then as the stresses try to propagate, they actually go through the gradient and you know, stop propagating, and, you know, well, the, the energy is just gone. So stuff like that, you know, um, people will have a field day working with this. Of course. The 3D printers also have to open themselves up to these kinds of capabilities. You know, so far they, you know, nobody modeled this stuff, so they were kind of, you know, not offering that. But you know, increasingly, we see also metal printing where we can actually attach uh, voxel level, you know, process parameters, and you know, we have all the architecture in order to do that. Yeah, but then, of course, you we would have the ability. You said this before to design the entire build volume, so you would then also skip dispense to entirely with. Could you dispense with G code and STL and everything, and then file repair and everything? Oh like yeah, that? Do you, I didn't even think about that. What are you? What are you outputting? <laughs> exactly. Well, ideally, we output slices, you know, that go directly right. in files, you know, because frankly, I mean, the objects that we produce usually blow up all the slices on the planet, you know. So, mm -hmm. um, I mean. <laughs> We, we can output uh, SDL files. I mean, you, you lose a lot of fidelity. I mean, you get faceting. I mean, you, you of course, lose all the volumetric information and um, any, any process parameters that you may have attached. But we can output SDL files. But 
I mean, show me the slicer that can slice a 20 gigabyte uh, SDL file. And that's a simple object for us. So, um, yeah. yes, I mean, what, one of the things that we had to do very early is, you know, create a complete framework for actually uh, generating slices, nesting, you know, mm -hmm. support generation, you know, all of this stuff. So mm -hmm. this is all built into the platform. So you can, you can basically skip all the preparation phases and go directly to the printer. I, it, would, it would seem that you could also then uh, do the reverse and have an input as a, a DICOM file, right? And then edit it, for example. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so so we do that a lot. I mean, DICOM basically stores voxels, and that's basically our native data format. So we can import DICOM files and then do something with it. We can, you know, fill it with a lattice. You know, we can grow things on the top of the surface. You know, we can warp it, you know, whatever. You know, so we can do a lot of things, you know, um, with these native uh, data format. And it, you know, has, of course, a lot of implications with, with bioprinting and, you know, all these fields. And I think, yeah, I think like let, uh, editing the organ or giving like uh, being able to the resolution required for the human body uh, would be really, really very valuable, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, we actually work in the field of bioprinting. So, um, you know, one of the interesting things is, uh, you know, most people think that bioprinting is kind of completely separate thing. And uh, of course, you know, the objects that you need there are literally as complex as nature, and it's a formidable uh, engineering challenge. But that's fundamentally what our technology was built for. I mean, we think that at some point, we're going to build machines as complex as nature. And so why not start with nature and bioprinting? So uh, there's an interesting story, because, you know, we see a lot of lateral transfer between different engineering domains. And um, uh, we worked with the Tissue Institute of the Technical University of Munich. And we had a PhD student there who was researching alveoles, you know, lung bubbles. So you have millions of these in your lung. They're tiny. It's basically a tiny little air sac and they're tiny little capillaries on top of that. And literally like the oxygen molecules go across the boundary into the capillaries. And that's how you actually breathe. And um, this researcher had been working on this for three years. And uh, basically, she had been experimenting with 3D printing um, the CT scan of a um, alveoli from a mouse. And uh, the interesting thing is that um, she could never vary the CT scan, of course. And she was trying to model things uh, in a CAD program. But of course, she was getting nowhere because the complexity was way too high. But she had actually printed these things with a nanoscribe printer in living cells, and basically everything was working. But you know, it was really a challenge to do something scientifically because if you do want to do something scientifically, you have to uh, uh, vary things and you have to make sure that you are actually testing different hypotheses. So we sent her into the office of one of our engineers, you know, a space engineer who'd work on a new type of rocket engine. And four hours later, she came out with a computational model of a uh, alveoli. So now she could vary it and generate extremely complex structures. And how do right. we get that done in four hours? You know, it's not magic. Funnily mm -hmm. enough, a lot of the algorithms that we use for routing cooling channels across the surface of a rocket engine are actually very similar to what we have to do with the capillaries on the alveoli. So <laughs> it's a base geometry, but you know, fundamentally, engineering-wise, it was all the same. And that's mm -hmm. that's really, I mean, I think this is really remarkable because that's the power of software. Um, in software, you can use things, you, know, you can use algorithms for different things. So if I create a database, you can use it to do a, uh, you know, to store your customer data. You can use it to do a social network. You, you can do, you can use it for all kinds of things. 
things that I may have not even thought about when I created this base technology. And the same is now happening in engineering, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's a really ambitious vision. I think you know we're not going to be able to do gas transfer much better than the lungs. You know, and I, th- I, th- I really, I really see this happening in a lot of really, really different areas. And I think it could be really exciting. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of lot of things we can learn from nature, and the problem with nature so far was always that nature is too complex for us engineers. So we can, you know, I mean, look at the winglets of an airplane and look at how long it took us to put them there. I mean, if right. you look at the wings of a bird, you know, it's, uh, well, you know, we, we still have a few things to learn and to engineer. And I, I think, you know, additive, you know, combined with, you know, algorithmic engineering, what we are doing is, is will get us there at some point. So how does one get started with this? Do we just go to your website or what's, what's the... You can go to our website. I mean, it's still a little bit in stealth mode. We're opening up this year. and uh, But yeah, I mean, shoot us an email and we'll get you an invite for the platform and you can get started. That'd be awesome. I'm going to do that. Yeah, yeah. I'm totally going to do that. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, where are you going to be in, in five years? Where do you hope to be with the company in five years from now? I hope in five years from now, um, uh, the most complex and most interesting machines in the world are going to be, uh, you know, we are going to be involved in some some way, right? You know, this this is our vision. I mean, our vision is very clearly, I mean, there's 200 million engineers in the world. I want our runtime on every single engineer's desktop, you know, and maybe not all of them are developers and not all of them are creating things, but a lot of them will be using apps that other people have created and it will hopefully be indispensable to um, mm-hmm. their their workflows. And, you know, by the way, just to be clear, I mean, uh, there is one field that went through a similar transition, that's architecture. Uh, architects used to draw everything by hand, I mean, not long ago on, on a piece of paper. And, you know, then people like Zaha Hadid came and created these amazingly complex buildings. And, you know, there's no way in hell you can do that manually anymore. I mean, the shape is, of course, out of a computer. But, you know, how do you generate the structural elements and all of these things? And that's where computational design came first into play. And today, any every architect that exits university has been exposed to computational design. And so I think uh, you know, every engineer you know, that will exit you know, the universities in the next couple of years will be familiar with algorithmic engineering and uh, coding in order to solve complex uh, engineering problems. At the same time, though, you've created a platform. There are literally millions of people out there that know how to code. And I've always seen one of the biggest impediments to 3D printing is the software, the, the way that we interact by, you know, CAD, um, yeah. because it takes so much effort and time to learn how to CAD um, yeah. and to do it well. And I had to learn how to do that in order to do stuff with 3D printing. I know how to code. If I could have just been coding this from the beginning, uh, I feel like I would have, I'd be a lot further in that. But I, I so I, I wonder if this is, the, the way that we all get over the hump of 3D design is by not sitting and clicking buttons and drawing something visually, but just yeah. by coding it. And that's, and that's what I really like about this idea. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the challenge that you have with, uh, you know, just your, your regular coder is that they are not engineers. And so they know very little about the domain. So we've been but, hiring mostly engineers and teaching them how to code. Now, yeah. we also have a lot of coders, of course. Um, and they work on more abstract problems, you know, like optimization strategies and these kinds of things. You know, but yeah, I mean, you're but, right. I mean, fundamentally, anybody who can code can be enabled to do these kinds of things. And the, the beauty of a coder is that you could just sit there and smack your head against the code wall, so to speak, until you yeah. generate something that looks about right. 
Um, and, and say like, okay, so this code produced something that looks right. And now you can print that mm-hmm. and then see it fall apart and hopefully learn something from that and then go back and change the code. Yeah. Um, and have that be a lot easier than the traditional method. Having to go in, go through the file, check it for tears, check it for this, check it for that, you know, yeah. to just no to realize problem. that you just, you designed it wrong, you know? <laughs> totally. I mean, this is, this is the, the, this is the strange thing about engineering today. It's not playful at all because it's so right. manual work. You know, it's, it's really menial work in, in many cases. Huh? And the worst thing that can happen is, you know, you're almost done with everything. And then your boss comes in and said, Hey, I had this epiphany yesterday evening. Can we redo the whole thing because you know I want to do it differently? And you're like, shit, you know, I, I was on that, you know, for weeks or months maybe. And no, you can't quickly change something. You you have to basically redo the whole thing. You have to press the right. button again. And you know, it's 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 just terrible amounts of work. It's so liberating, I can tell you. It's so liberating. I mean, after after three weeks, usually our guys, you know, they they um, they are through our online coursework. And they start producing the first uh, objects. And today we actually had our show- showcase. I mean, we had just 15 people start here in January. And, uh, you know, they went through the first three weeks of, of the curriculum. And today they presented their objects. And we had everything, right? You know, from really complex, you know, lattice work, you know, to, you know, one guy modeled a very detailed uh, cannon out of World of Warcraft, you know. So, I mean, you can nice. literally do everything. You know? I mean, and, and, you know, it's all based on computer code i mean to me it's it's this playfulness that you know, where you can play around and you can see you know sometimes simple algorithms create incredibly complex structures and you know a lot of them are very beautiful but you know a lot of them are also very functional and i think you know just this experimentation will create a lot of engineering solutions that we currently don't think about yeah lynn thank you so much for being on the 3d pod this is, uh, this is really really very nice thank you yeah Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's going to be exciting in the next couple of years. Definitely, definitely. And Max, thank you for being here as well. Oh, thank you for having me. I I'm, can't wait to bug Lynn to get a copy of the software. <laughs> <laughs> it's my invitation only, but we invite all our friends. So, Okay, good, good, good. And, uh, well, and thank you for listening. And uh, my name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.